So like I said at the beginning, we, we, we're starting this series, and so um, it's, it's topical, but we're going to be looking at specific passages of Scripture um, and, and how uh, we deal with those. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to be doing that for the next four or five weeks um, as, we, as we process these. Um, and today, we're going to be talking about a question that was raised um, about the nature of equality. What does the Bible say? about equality, um, because this is a, a word that we're always kicking around, and people are always, um, you know, oh, equality, equality. Um, and there is a biblical model of equality um, that that we, we should understand and see the world in the context of what the scriptures say. That is kind of the definition of believing that the Bible is uh, the final authority for faith and practice. Um, it, it is that is kind of uh, a category that we should see things through a biblical lens, and so we're going to do that this morning. Um, and uh, so I'm going to invite you to join me with a word of prayer, and then we're going to be turning to uh, the Book of Romans and considering the issue of equality. Heavenly Father, we do um, come together, Lord. We ask that you would be glorified in our midst as we as we sing, as we as we pray, as we worship together, uh, Lord. As we look to your Word, um, Lord, help us to uh, see with our eyes, but also with our spirits, um, to hear with our ears, but also to, um, to, to, um, to hear what you have to say beyond anything we might say. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> the, question, the question was raised, and the actual question is in the bulletin, and you can, you can read it um, uh, as it goes. Um, and as I looked at this question, I said, I said, where can we go for this to answer this question? There are lots of passages of Scripture that deal with um, uh, a lot of different aspects of human relationships. And, and to be honest, it's not a cut-and-dry, absolute, concrete thing. There are, there are groups, um, and I'm just going to use uh, gender equality as, as one of the examples. Um, there are three basic schools of thought on the relationship of the genders. There is a hierarchical view that, that uh, men are you know, at the top uh, of the list, and then there comes women, and then comes children, and, and then I guess comes stepkids. I don't know where they fit. But the idea is that the man is meant to be the absolute authority in all things, and, and these are the kind of churches that they will say that women aren't supposed to talk in church because they're usurping a man's role and, and all of those things. Um, and then on the other side of the equation is the egalitarians who say everybody's equal in everything. Um, and so everybody everybody has equal say, everybody has equal voice, everybody can do everything that anybody else can do. Um, and and there's, there's, there's merit to some aspects of, of that position. And then kind of in the middle is what's called complementarianism, which is this idea that men and women um, are created um, equal but different. Um, not to eat, not separate but equal, but equal but different. That they have different roles, um, and uh, and so there's kind of these these three schools of thought that come to the scripture, and pretty much um, pretty much everybody sits somewhere on the spectrum of the three. It's not really that somebody can walk around and go, well, you know, I'm a de vitro complementarian. You know, there, there's no, it's not like labeling things. It, it's a spectrum. Some people have uh, very very strong beliefs about things. I've met people who believe that, for example. Um, that believe that a single woman um, has no right to make any decisions for herself. Um, her parents should make the decisions for her until she gets married, and then her husband should make the decisions for her. So kind of this extreme 
um, uh, uh, a hierarchical view that women are basically cattle. Um, I don't ascribe to that, by the way, in case anyone's wondering, um, in case it was not clear. And then you get the other side where there's super egalitarianism, where it doesn't matter if somebody um, is gifted or skilled in an area. Everybody has equal say on everything. So, um, you know, and this is this I'm starting to refer to this as as um, um, I I, I coined a word a few years ago. I started calling people twittiots. A a twittiot is somebody who gets all their information from social media. Um, where all authorities are equal. It's like, well, here's this doctor from Yale. Yes, but here's this meme I found. And this is valid. This is equally valid with this doctor kind of attitude. I know, you're not supposed to call people twittiots. But um, uh, anyway, so so that's going to... That's going to trend on the three social media accounts that, that are here. Um, anyway, so so this this other side of egalitarianism, where, where all authority is equal, all people are equal, nobody gets any say, the world is basically anarchy. And then complementarianism is kind of just a, a spectrum in between. Um, you know, for example, our, our position at Bedford Road, and, and it's not a universally held position, it's kind of a... Um, we made a decision to err on the side of caution, which is that in all aspects of our faith and our lives, we view, and I'm just talking about this one specific area, um, we view men and women as equals. Um, and and equals before God, equals before one another. Um, and, uh, you know, we, there is a husband-wife relationship that's described in Ephesians about the relationship between a man and a woman, but that relationship is is a marital relationship um, and, and so the only thing that we, that the only real division that we have, so we kind of are on the egalitarian side of complementarianism, is that, you know, the scriptures that describe elders describe them as a husband of one wife. Um, and so we err on the side of caution on that particular interpretation and our elders are all, are all men. They're all men that meet all the other criteria. Um, now, <clears throat> there's a lot of biblical debate about that. There's a lot of information on both sides of that. We've kind of made a, a, a position there. Would we die on that hill? Absolutely not. Um, but that's kind of that's kind of where it is. So I use that as an example to talk about equality just to kind of give a gender, not to, not to make the sermon about that particular issue. But the issue of equality comes up. I mean, when my mother was young, um, feminism was just getting hitting its second wave um, and, and women were rising up rightly rising up and saying that they had they should have a voice in the culture um and it it, it profoundly as a historian it's always interesting to discover when you as you're a kid you're growing up and you read stuff like the declaration of independence and and it talks about how all you know everybody was given rights endowed by their creator and then you realize that the guy that wrote that what he really meant was men who owned property and in fact white men who owned property. In fact, English white men who owned property were the ones that were endowed with rights by their creator. And it took time for us to evolve and understand that that included first men with different skin colors, then that it included women, and then that it, that it kind of, you know, kind of more or less included people whether they own stuff or not. It's, it's, it's weird to see how our culture's view of equality is always evolving. It's always changing. And so in the 60s, you had the second wave of feminism. And then and now today you have you have kind of this driving mentality um, in our culture where everybody wants to be equal. And I don't think that that's a wrong aspiration, that everybody should be given equal opportunity. Everybody should be given equal 
um, uh, equal tools in their hands to do with as they are gifted to do. Um, but then there are some extremists who would say that um, you have to put a mathematical number on it. Unless 50% of all the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies are female, then if, if that's not true, then the, 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 um, the market is sloped against women. Right? It's, it's biased against women. So the number has to be equal. Everything has to be numerically equal. Um, you know, it, it, it's one of those it's one of those situations, and we see it in sports. They talk about head coaches. They want to have head coaches of a certain ethnicity. At what percentage they should be? There's all these conversations. I'm not condemning or jumping on either side. I'm just saying there are all these conversations going on about equality. Um, of course, a few years ago there was the conversation about marriage equality, um, and and should should the state be restricting people from the protections uh, of that are afforded by the legal system. That's really what marriage overseen by the government, by the courts and everything is really about. It's about legal protection. It's about, um, about how you're perceived in the courts. And there was a quite the conversation about that that went on for quite some time. So with all of these swinging things going on about equality, what does the Bible say about this issue. And I mentioned earlier that when you are confronted with a situation like this, the first place we've got to go is to the fundamental idea, the foundational idea. And I mentioned in Genesis 1, I think that it's important that in Genesis 1, we we note that when God creates man, he creates them male and female. He creates man, singular, male and female. Um, and so there is this sense that there is an equality in those relationships. Um, there is an inherent um, peer relationship rather than boss and uh, student relate or boss and employee relationship. I won't get too much into that, but we can look at the scriptures on that one. But I think we can even go deeper on the question of all equality whether it's about gender or race or orientations or any of those things, I think we can go deeper and we can go deeper in the book of Romans. Now, if you don't know, book of Romans, the book of Romans is probably the most, most doctrinally dense book in the New Testament. There is a lot in the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul opens the book of Romans up, his first two chapters, he spends quite a great deal of time. He does his typical welcome and all that stuff. Then he spends a great deal of time talking about how pagans, non-Jews, the Gentiles, um, they refused to they refused to worship the Creator, and so they were given over. They, they worship the creation instead of the Creator. They're given over to reprobate minds. They do all kinds of sin, all kinds of evil. And up to that point, his Jewish readers are going, yeah, Gentiles, they're awful. And then in chapter two, he says, oh, yeah. And by the way, you Jews with your law and all of your all of your restrictions and all of your things, you still are sinners. You're just as bad as the Gentiles. And they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. And then in chapter three, Paul writes, he, he talks about in chapter three, he actually says, then what his first verse is, what advantage is the Jew? And he goes through, he says, the only advantage the Jews have is that they have the revealed word of God. And that actually makes them, um, in some ways, more sinners than, than the Gentiles because they have the word and they reject it. 
But I'm not going to get into that. What I want to do is I want to go down to uh, verse 9, and that's where, where we're going we're gonna to go to talk about equality. Paul says this, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? So is it being Jewish? And remember, Paul is Jewish. He says, um, are the Jews any better off? And he says, nope, not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. And then he quotes uh, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I hope you get his point there. All right? I don't know if he used enough negatives to indicate this, all right? but his point is, here's where our equality starts. No one is righteous. No, not one. Their throat is, in case you didn't get it, he continues, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to show blood, show, shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I think he's making a point. I could be wrong. But I think he's driving an idea home. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no man will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then he concludes, then what, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. And you say, what does this have to do with all the issues of equality in the world? Well, let me, let me propose to you a big idea for something to process. And that is that so many people are looking at the issue of equality, the question of equality, and they are saying, some people are up here, and other people are down here, and we either need to bring these people down here, or we need to bring everybody here, or we need to bring these people up here. In other words, they are using human accomplishment or success, money, wealth, possessions, position, gender, whatever you want to use, they are using it as a standard to say what we should be equal to. So if we put a numerical value to things and we say, okay, um, you know, a, a, a male CEO of a, of a Fortune 500 company makes X number of million dollars. It's already too much, whatever the number is. It's already too much. All right. Um, so X million dollars, and, and if he's male, he makes this, but if women make women who do the same job make this, 
So either we want the men to be brought down to the women's level or we want the women brought up to the man's level and that's going to be equality. That's going to be parity. All right. Now, the, the issue with that question, I, I hope you see the cardinal problem with that issue. It assumes that the man and women are equally capable, equally experienced, and equally able to do the job. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know about you, but I've never met two human beings with an identical skill set. So there's always going to be some disparity based on those things. So just gendering, just just judging it by one particular standard, and again, I'm using the gender thing because it's an easy to recognize one, not because it's some kind of hobby horse for me. But by using by using just that, they're actually oversimplifying the question. There's more to it than that. But none of that is has to do with biblical equality. The Bible never says that everybody should make the same amount of money for the same job they do. Um, I, I one time was talking to somebody and they said, well, the Bible says um, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And I went, that's not what the that's not the Bible. That's Karl Marx. Where did you get that from? But when you look at the Bible, what you discover is that people people had different levels. Right. I mean, Paul is a tent maker. He's got a certain way of living his life. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla um, are tent makers, but they're established tent makers first in, in Corinth and then, uh, or not in Corinth, uh, uh, in, um, where are Aquila and Priscilla? Philippi, no, Corinth. They meet in Corinth, right? I think they're in Corinth. Now, Ray and I are both, I think they're in Corinth. Anyway, they're in Greece somewhere. Yeah, and then they wind up in Rome. Yeah, they wind up in Rome eventually. Um, there are some Greeks, and they wind up, but they they seem to be a pretty mobile family that that can take care of a lot of people so they seem to be a pretty wealthy family right so you've got wealthy families you've got poor families we we see in first corinthians uh, 11 we've got this issue that in the church there were wealthy people and poor people there's a disparity going on in james we have this issue with people um in james there's an issue with people giving honor to people that come in with fine dress and wearing rings and all this stuff so there's always been a disparity it's not like everybody's ever been even or equal so what does the Bible say about equality? It does the Bible say that the thing that we need to do is that the people that are up here and the people that are down here, everybody has to be up here. I would argue that what Paul starts with, his argument of equality in Romans chapter 3, is that both of them are down here. He starts with the notion, the idea, that nobody deserves anything from God. Now, this is a hard thing for some, for most human beings to understand because we believe that we deserve certain things. That God wants us to have certain things. Now, God may want you to have certain things, but that does not mean you are entitled to those things. We are not entitled to receive from God anything because there is none righteous, no, not one, there is none that seeks after righteousness, uh, understanding. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. You say, I haven't turned aside. Brother, sister, yes, you have. I, I'm sorry. Yes, you have. There is, there is no one on the planet who can make a claim to being more righteous or better than any other person. 
And if we start with an equality of being zero, rather than an equality of this has that value and this has that value, if we start with us both at zero, that's where equality starts. That's where the line starts. Um, there's so many issues that float around this. I want to start, here's, I got three points. This rarely happens, but I got three points because Paul had three points. Point number one, we are equal in our sinfulness. There is none, there is no one righteous, not, no, not one. If we don't start from that foundation, we cannot build a biblical theology of equality. If we don't start with the fundamental understanding that we are all sinful, and we are all 100% the same sinful. Now, our sins might be different. One of, us, one of us, our sin might be gluttony, another might be lust. We might be all over the board on driving in Massachusetts. I mean, there, there's all kinds of different sins that we can be involved in. But we start with the, the bare bone line, we are all sinful. You say, what's the basis for that? Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous. No, not one. So point number one, we are all sinful. And then point number two, we are equal in our sinfulness. And then number two, we are equal in our depravity. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Now, when you bring up the word depravity, anybody that's kind of had a casual relationship with theology, we misunderstand this word because of the way that we use it today. Today we talk about somebody being depraved. Oh, he's so depraved, you know. Depravity means that we are deprived of the ability to save ourselves. That's the theological definition. We are incapable of saving ourselves. So in other words, there is not some people that have an ability to become Christians on their own. There are not some people who, who are able to convince God to save them better than other people. We are all sinful, and therefore we are all depraved. We are all incapable of saving ourselves. That's an important point. Because if you believe that you are capable of saving yourself, you believe that you are better than other people. Do you know that in the Middle Ages, missions didn't exist for one simple reason? The Europeans interpreted the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach Christ. They 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 read it, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, as being fulfilled when all Europeans became Christians. So God predetermined that everybody that wasn't European was going to die and go to hell, and that was just the way it was. They were less important, they were destined for damnation, and that's why you could fight crusades and massacre those pagan Saracens, you know, or whatever they wanted to call them. Because they were headed to hell anyway. There was no reason, there was no reason, their lives were already forfeit. And you can read theologians writing that. And ironically, strangely enough, it was the, the uh, predecessors of the Baptists, even um, early in the Reformation, that was a belief that was held by pretty much all European Christianity. Um, there was this, these independents who went, don't you think we should at least tell people about Jesus? We should at least give them a shot? You know, and, and the argument was, no, no, they won't accept it. It doesn't matter. They're pagan. Um, they're, they're not like us. Um, and there's a lot of that that ties into racism. There's a lot of that idea that, that ties into the slave trade. I'm not going to get into all of it. But it was this mentality that we are the ones who God has chosen to save and everybody else is just out of luck. In other words, there is something inherently good about me, something inherently better about me than there is about my neighbor the people down the road, 
the people across the sea. There's something inherently better about me. But the Bible says that none of us can do good. None of us are capable of doing that. And you say, does that apply to our contemporary culture? I hope you can see immediately where that starts to apply to our contemporary culture. When we start talking about the tip, the topic of something like racial equality, we have to be, we have to stop defining it by this color of skin is better than this color of skin, or this color of skin, uh, these people with these, this color of skin tend to have this kind of behavior, this kind of trait, and therefore they're justified. These people are justified in doing something to those people, and so the response to that is no. We have to treat everybody equal. We have to stop looking at the color of somebody's skin, start looking at the actions of their lives and the fabric of their lives. What is going on in their world that is, that is there something that can be addressed in their world to change things so that they are less likely to do this behavior because we all deserve, we're all sinners, we're all depraved, so that means that we all have to be given the same opportunity to know the law of God. We have to be given the same opportunity to grow in grace. By the way, the the and I, I the whole the whole racial thing's a whole other um, thing. Um, but uh, there was a fundamental understanding, and it's important that Americans understand this. There was a fundamental theological understanding in the Christianity of the colonial era that it was okay to, specifically in the South, that it was okay to enslave Africans because they were not a part of the elect of God. There was a very strong belief in the election of God that extended only to Europeans that was preached from the pulpits, by the way. And so it was okay and it was justified because Africans couldn't possibly comprehend the things of God. Now, somebody should have told the largest church in Richmond uh, in the 19th century, which happened to be an African-American church, um, but, but, the, but that, was, that was an underlying justification. And people drew that from the Bible. Now, they drew it wrong, but they drew it from the Bible. So you say, does biblical equality speak to race relations? It absolutely does. You can't say this is Bible and it's religion. It doesn't affect politics. If your, if your view on the Bible and faith don't affect your politics, what's wrong with you? Honestly, your, your fundamental doctrinal beliefs should affect your politics. They absolutely should. I know I'm not supposed to say that. We can lose our tax-exempt status. But it should, that, that is fundamentally true. If your beliefs don't affect how you vote, who are you voting for? I mean, you're not voting your conscience if you're not voting your beliefs. Anyway, moving on. The third point. We are equally sinful, we are equally depraved, and we are equally accountable. Now, this is the flip side that most people will be on par. I mean, most, most people voting for equality and everything be online with me until they get to the third one. You, we are all equally accountable for our own actions. Look at verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So it only speaks to the, the Jews, right? Only those that are under the law. Now, he's, whether he's actually talking about the Jewish law or not, there's some debate about that. But so that every mouth may be stopped. So that Jewish mouths may be stopped. So that white mouths may be stopped. So the black mouths, but female mouths, um, that that you know that ev- no, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be what 
held accountable to God. Equality means not only am I sinful, not only am I depraved, but I am accountable. I am 100% accountable for my own actions. I choose what I do. I choose the, the unrighteousness of my sin, all right? But I choose to do it. Now you say, how does that work? How how can you know? I mean, how can human beings choose if God is sovereign? That's called the paradox of faith. Don't you? you people that want to argue that people don't have any free will have never looked around themselves. People choose their own path of action. But what what happens is people choose their path of action, but then they don't want to be held accountable for their path. Now we could talk about. I mean, you could, you could use any number of illustrations from the contemporary world. Right? People take over a few uh, few city blocks of a particular city in the northwest. I won't mention which one, but they decide to make they decide to make an anarchy zone where they're going to self-govern themselves. And the the appointed government of the land then marches in and drives them out of that zone. And somehow the rightfully duly elected government of the land is in fault at fault. For, for holding people accountable for breaking the law. It's not their fault. They were driven to it. It doesn't matter. If I walked over to you, I, I use this example all the time. People talk about uh, all these questions. If I walk over to you and I just punch you in the gut, and then somebody comes over and holds me back and they say, why did you punch him in the gut? And you said, and I said, well, I had mitigating circumstances that made me want to punch him in the gut. It's not my fault. Is that going to work? I, I had to punch him in the gut. I, I was I was moved by my culture to punch him in the gut. Equality starts when we are honest about our sinfulness, we are honest about our depravity, and we are honest about our accountability. Now, honesty doesn't mean being apologetic for things we didn't do. Honesty just means being honest about who we are. I am a sinner. I can tell you that boldly and truthfully and honestly. And if you didn't know about it, all you have to do is visit my house. Within a few hours, you'll know I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I sin. I fail. I make mistakes. I become self-serving. I become selfish. I do things for motivations that don't bring the glory to Christ. I do it. You do it. We all do it. I don't stand up here and say, as the pastor, therefore, I am less sinful than you. Because I have been specially chosen and elected. I don't walk up to my wife and say, because I'm a man, I'm less sinful than her. Not anymore. You only do that one time. No, I never did that. It doesn't make you better. You you don't you don't you know. I mean, I am, um, you know, I I, I had a, a family member, not a family member, a friend. Um, I had a friend who used to refer to their children as "you little sinners." You little sinner, get over here. I'm like, now wait a second. Isn't that kind of ma kettle calling pa kettle black? I mean that that I mean it's not like you're not a sinner. In fact, I think you're angry, which I think is a sin. So maybe we need to evaluate this. Rather than saying we are all sinners. So so here we are. Here's the level playing field. Then whatever God does to sinners, and this is super important, to depraved, accountable sinners, 
whatever God blesses to sinners, we then can see as God's blessing instead of him or her getting ahead of me. Him or her being better than me. Him or her getting something that I deserve. When we start with our sinfulness and our depravity, we come to understand there's a difference. Now, when we look out of the world and we say, why does 90% in America, 90% of the wealth reside with 1% of the population or something like that? So many people look at that and they go, well, that's an inequality. We have to fix it. And honestly, if I'm being honest, I look at the scripture and I go, we're all sinners. We're all deprived. Do I think it's fair from my perspective? No. Is it my job to then steal from those people to make things right? No, because I'm a sinner. I'm deprived. I'm not the one who gets to decide. In fact, I'm not the one who gets to judge their sin. I think, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong, the Bible says that God judges the hearts of all men. So I may look at something and go, that's not right, that's unfair, and I might even try to address it on a personal level, but the fact of the matter is, I have to start from the fundamental understanding that we are all sinners, we are all deprived, and we are depraved, and we are all accountable. That means I'm accountable for what I do for the blessings that God gives to me. You are accountable for the blessings that God gives to you. You are accountable for the challenges that you face and how you handle them and how you face them. You are accountable for what you do with what God has given you to relate to other people. Now, some of you might say, I feel that God has called me to work toward um, better uh, racial reconciliation or gender equality or whatever. That's good. That's wonderful. That's, that's a rich endeavor to be engaged in, but do it because of the biblical foundation, not because of the human foundation. Do it understanding who we are as people. Now, let me just expand the equality thing one more place. You cannot fix the world by going around and labeling people and then treating the category by the label unless that label is sinners in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. When people walk around and they slap labels on this group or that group, these are the privileged, these are the oppressed, these are the strong, these are the weak, these are the good, these are the bad, these are, these are the people that deserve grace, these are the people that don't deserve grace. When we walk around setting up categories, who is establishing those categories? We are. We're becoming judges. We're becoming juries. We're making decisions. The scriptures say we just start with it. And, and this, I know this, this, this annoys people sometimes because they think that I should be doing more than I, we should be doing more as a church for all these political causes and stuff. And I, and I, and I get the frustration, but the reality is the church's function is to preach the gospel and the gospel starts with man's sinfulness. And if we don't start there, we can't make any change in the world. If we don't first address sin, and we don't first bring ourselves to a point where we go, we're all sinners in need of Christ, if we don't start there, then anything we build is just a house of cards. We must begin with this. 
you say, well, this this equality thing, I mean, you talked about a bunch of contemporary stuff, but you didn't really address the issues. I leave that to you. You take the Bible and do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do, vector out how you vector out. But the fundamental thing is we have to begin here. We have to begin here.